So like we got like 30% of the country vaccinated now, right? Something like that, yeah. I follow a lot of people on Twitter, um, a lot of a lot of gay people, a lot of a lot of pop culture type people. Mm-hmm. I, not a single person has said, "Bitch, I'm Moderna." Yet, how is that possible? What are, are we? You've slept. Mad- oh my god! Isn't that? It's just. It, it was is. like. Wow. Yeah. It it did take me a beat to even get the reference, but it's so obvious. It's right there. It's right there. It's right there. It's right wow. there. We're slipping. We're slipping. We're a little bit out of practice, yeah. but that's okay. We're coming out of a year and a half long pandemic. It's to be expected. But we'll when get you back. We'll get back somebody somebody out there, just take the leap and plunge. Mm-hmm. You know, tweet at us, bitch. I'm Moderna. Dive right in. Dive right in. I, I literally I did a search for it, and like nothing. It's very strange. Um, but we're both double vaxxed, Matt. Double vaxxed. I know by the time this airs, I will be just about inoculated. God, and you as well. I got it. Well, yeah. I guess next Wednesday will be my, my safe date. Um, how? Talk me through it. How are you? I mind, you know, it's the it's same same story as uh, so many tales all this time. Uh, mm-hmm. Day of, fine. Next day, brutal. Felt like the flu. We were both just mm-hmm. down and out all day. Felt better that night. Felt uh, normal by the next morning. Okay. And now here we uh, are. Yeah, same thing. Uh, I was absolutely physically devastated the next day. It was terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I've never been that. I haven't been that sick in 10 years. Uh, but through the whole thing, I was like, "This uh, then tomorrow I'm going to be fine, and then everything is going to be back to normal." And I cleared the day to wear sweatpants and sit on the TV, sit on the couch and watch TV. No, oh, yeah. Did I watch all of season one of the other two again? Yes, I did. Oh, it's uh, so good. It's so good. Did I watch the talk on CBS? Yes, I did. Oh, it, uh, so good. Not good. No, not as good as v- the other two. Really, really bad. Really stilted and bad. And mm. I hate. I hate to say that you almost want to uh, Sharon Osbourne just yelling at people, but you might. Um, mm. Also, Kelly Clarkson show. I did watch a bit of the Kelly Clarkson show. I forget who, who her guest was, but the guest had shoes on that were made out of recycled uh, consumer plastics. Mm. And Kelly Clarkson said, look at you. You're like a walking person who cares about the environment. <laughs> that was Yeah. That was some wordplay from the Kelly Clarkson wow, show. Kelly, that's like something um, I would have said. Oof. It, no, no, stop that right now. Um, had ramen, had a double-double, uh, a, a truly blessed day. Yeah, if that doesn't cure you, I don't know what will. We have heard from some listeners. Uh, yes, we have. You know, after last week, we did some confessionals. And uh, if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it. I tell a humiliating story about a song I once wrote. Mm-hmm. Dave teases us with uh, poetry he used to write. And mm-hmm. there have been some nice responses on Twitter. At Dale Brooklyn wrote to us, I think Dave and Matt should auction access to the lead-lined room for charity. I'm mm. sure people would love to hear Climate Change. That's the name of the unfortunate song That's I wrote. Song. And Dave's poetry. I don't remember the titles. Okay, well, we're not going to do that because um, you, I mean, even if we confiscate your phone on the way in, you'll have, you have a memory. We can't men in black you. And, we don't want. Yeah, we don't even want to give people that. Ex- oh, is that the point of the lead lined? I guess it must be. I guess it must be. Hmm. Um, so, Dell Brooklyn, I mean, we certainly urge you to make a donation to the charity of your choice, but not. We can't give you this in return. We can't. We'll think no. of something else. I think the real key is find us in the real world when we, you know, yes. when when we've all reemerged. Maybe we're all at Akbar one night and we've had a few. Yes. Yes. That's when you move in. Buy us a drink. That's what we do. Uh, Matt Dillon, not the Matt Dillon, at Matt Zigazig Ooh, uh, says this week's of home, uh, episode of Homophilia Pod is great and important to listen with T.S. Madison. Absolutely true. ATL, one. Uh, but grab your popcorn for the first 10 minutes as Matt McConkie confesses about a breakup. And I agree with Dave Holmes. I want more. We will drill deeper into this experience someday. <sighs> More to come. And believe me, my first two or three relationships were disasters also. And I have kept those stories close to the vest to protect the innocent, but perhaps someday. Again. Something to look forward to. You just never know. If booze and or a charitable donation is involved, maybe my lips will loosen. This week, we have the, uh, can we just say it, Um, incredibly handsome Charlie Carver? There's no other way to say it. 
And frankly, it would be rude to not acknowledge that. But he is also incredibly fascinating and so smart and funny and interesting and, um, you know, is in The Boys in the Band on Netflix and was in the Broadway show. He was on Teen Wolf, Desperate Housewives and a ton of other stuff. We have so much fun talking to him. Before we go to the interview i want to tell i mean if you're if you're listening to this i'm sure you're already a bitch sesh fan i'm sure you're already on this but i just have to give a little plug to my dear friend casey wilson uh her book the wreckage of my presence uh is coming out on may 4th so pre-order your copy I will say I have read it and it's so raw and so funny. There are genuine hard laughs and a lot of tears. You know, sometimes like comedian autobiographies are so kind of soft. They're just going this sort of middle of the road. Like I was a nerd in high school, but I made it. And like, here's how to navigate Hollywood. This ain't that. It's so beautiful and really like she just establishes herself as a true author and uh, people are going to love it. So get your copy. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. The Wreckage of My Presence by Casey Wilson. Get it. Uh, But in the meantime, get yourself a, a nice piping hot slice of Charlie Carver. Where, where, where are you dialing in from? Where are you? Uh, I'm, I'm here in Silver Lake. So nice. Same city. Different neighborhood. Great, yeah. great, love Thank it. You. It looks like it looks like an elegant room, an elegant sort of den type area. I spent the last six, seven months in London and watched a lot of British HGTV, uh-huh. and everybody over there is obsessed with this thing called the dine-in kitchen, uh-huh. which I think is just a, a a kitchen with an oven and a dining table in it. Yeah. This is my my dine-in kitchen. I wish I could do a three sixty, but. Uh, yeah, I love this. It's it's beautiful. It's lovely. Thank you. It's lovely. You. You're cowboy hatted. You are. I am cowboy hatted. You are air potted. <laughs> You're ready. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about London because um, mm-hmm. when the pandemic started, I know you were stuck there for a good amount of time. I think, right? Yes, um, it was. So, what were you doing to stay sane? Um, well, so we got there last. I want to say the end of January or the beginning of February, 2020. Um, I'm not sure I was altogether sane when I arrived. My dad was a historian of medicine and science. And so from a very early age, I was sort of primed to fear a a pandemic. And uh, I went to London somewhat happily, very grateful for the work, but also kind of against better judgments, having a big fear that this thing was going to become global COVID. And uh, yeah, we got there. Work was really great and fun. And then um, I sort of wrapped the first shooting block just as the world started to lock down. So I got back to Los Angeles, actually, um, right before the California lockdown and was here holding tight until August. And I was in London from August until this past February. Okay. Yeah. What did I do to do to stay sane? I uh, I was with my brother in an apartment. So I I don't know. I think we worked through a lot of our childhood trauma together and wow. played video games Productive. and ordered great Indian food. So it wasn't so bad. <laughs> wow. I mean, listen, what better time than a pandemic to work through some trauma? Right. Seriously. Like the big, great global slowdown. Yeah. Stop listening. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And the relationship has improved. The relationship has improved magnificently. Great. We actually like, we kind of turned it. I don't want to hype anything that's like not fully done, but we kind of turned it into a project, a writing project of sorts. We really, oh, wow. we really got there. We really went down deep and, you know, tried to be generative with all of that stuff. So yeah, I'd say it was productive. Okay. And how, how bad, um, uh, relative to what you were fearing how bad has the last year been um i mean i sit atop all sorts of states of privilege it it i've been okay you know um i'm lucky to say it's it's been it's been a big sort of stop 
and which I've never had. I feel like I've never had this kind of stuff since I was 18 or 19 and entered the business and moved down to LA. So I, I felt like I got to take a big breath. Um, and in that way, I'm immensely grateful for all of the things I learned and all of the things that came out of it. It's also, I don't know if you've heard that, um, <laughs> it was, it, I think it was a meme at some point like circulating online that people who tend to have high anxiety do really well in, in high anxiety situations because all of a sudden everybody around them is, is sort of in the same state. And so I felt like, um, once, once it became, became clear how to, how I could take care of myself, how I could sort of isolate and keep safe distance. And when I was given a directive, what to do at the beginning of this pandemic, I was like, Oh, okay. I've been preparing for this my whole fucking life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For everybody who ever thought you were not. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> nice. It's nice when the, when the, the din of the world is at the same pitch as the din inside your head. It's, kind of. Yeah. It's relaxing. Yeah, there was something comforting, comforting about that. Yeah. Well, it was very unifying. I mean, mm -hmm. I just felt, I, 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 I hope that most people would say that there was just a sense of communion. We were all going through the same thing. Um, so I don't know. There, I think there was something kind of beautiful in that. And Ian, I'd love to hear more about your, your, bro I mean, you're a twin, obviously. And, um, you've acted together a lot since you were really young and now have your own careers. But I'm just curious about, you know, finding that balance between, you know, honoring this very special bond that you have with a twin and, and carving out your own path. You know, it's interesting. We, uh, we actually weren't super close growing up. Um, I think, should I give you like the full, I'll give you a little bit of biography here. Um, we were always very different as children. We're, we're actually mirror twins, um, which was something that was kind of hammered home since we were babies, which is where, uh, identical twins, like this monozygote splits at the very last second. And so it's as close as you can be to being conjoined. But um, because it splits the last second, the egg splits perfectly down the middle. And there's this sort of um, op oppositional symmetry. It's not bilateral symmetry, but I'm, I'm, I'm right-handed. He's left-handed. Um, every mole is flipped. There was just the sense of being mirrors and opposites um, for one another. And we actually, we have different birthdays. So I'm July 31st. He's August 1st. Um, our parents chose to celebrate those as, as separate special days, even, even from being little toddlers and stuff. And so we always had this sense of being um, very distinct from one another, kind of being flipped from one another. And that only, um, that sense of self only further developed into, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say we were like in opposition, but around 11, 12 years old, my dad came out of the closet and that was the same time that, you know, I was 11, 12 sort of awakening into all of the fun things of puberty. And so I knew I, at that point I, I had a name for myself of what made me different, what made me different from my brother. And we kind of took completely different paths from that point on. Um, I threw myself a little bit more headlong into the arts into a kind of creative identity. And my brother was much more of a, traditional bro, we'll call him. He uh, was into sports and academics. He went to this very um, old school, traditional East Coast uh, coat and tie boarding school. And I went to an art school in the middle of nowhere. And so we didn't have much of a relationship because we only saw each other during some of the summer holiday when we weren't taking some kind of job somewhere or uh, you know Christmas, Easter, when we were with one of our parents. And uh, yeah, that only changed in our 20s. Uh, we both somehow ended up in, in Los Angeles kind of independently of one another. Um, we're living these lives in close proximity, but without a lot of contact. And then our dad got sick and called us and, and disclosed that, you know, things weren't looking good. And for the first time since we were 11 or 12 years old, my brother and I moved in together to be able to take care of him. And that was really kind of the first time that we felt like we were twins and it happened to coincide with when we started to work in this business together desperate housewives and then teen wolf um, that was all happening at the same time 
You also were on The Leftovers together, which I've been thinking about a lot. I mean, it is one of my, you know, lifelong obsessions. I think a lot of people have been revisiting it because similar to what you're saying, it's like the world has caught up Uh. with The Leftovers in a way that the whole show is kind of a pandemic metaphor. And um, I know you were around primarily in the early days of it, but, you know, since we kind of get some answers in the end of it, but it is open to interpretation. How do you understand what happened in that show? Uh, how did you understand it when you were doing it or versus how you understand it? Now? Yeah. I, you know, I was actually a big fan of the book before, before the script ever came to my attention. Um, and then seeing how Damon kind of transposed the, emotional life of the book into a teleplay and then into this show like it was just such an honor and such a joy to be able to be a part of it in any small way and to be able to contribute to whatever the effect of it was um i'm so glad it does seem like people are reading sorry i just almost knocked this over i'm so glad people are rediscovering it um because i think it's 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 a show dressed up in speculative fiction but it's it's really about grief right i mean it's just I think grief can inflect any experience with this like mystery and magic. And I think that that show kind of captures that um, illogical and painful and beautiful magic of grief in, in like really symbolic ways. Um, I'm forgetting the question now because I feel like I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but uh yeah, I'd, I'd also forgotten that the the Frost Twins were in the book, and so when the when the script sort of landed in my inbox, and I read it, I went, "Oh my god, I love this thing!" Like, are you kidding me? There's a chance to get to to be a part of this story, and uh, I will say, I think as every script came in, the cast was everyone was so genial and nice and and respected one another, and and there was just this shared sense that we were telling a story, and we had no idea how other would other people would be affected but that we were all profoundly affected by it in a way that we couldn't explain and i think that that is the sort of legacy of the show for people who have seen it is they sort of go i can't i can't really explain to you what this did to me but it did something and i think you should see it for that reason um i will say like uh, i think a year after the first season wrapped we all thought that the show would continue being set in upstate New York and they decided to kind of move it to Texas for the second season, Australia for the third. Um, But Max Richter, who composed the score, which was so beautiful, he did a small show in New York City and a lot of the cast and the crew and the producers came and it was our way to sort of celebrate what had happened together. And uh, I wasn't expecting, I, I think I maybe had like half a brownie before I went, but I was just sobbing because that music had captured something about the show too, something just unnameable, but really powerful. Yeah. And, and so much of it is about the search for meaning that I I guess is always relevant, but especially in the wake of, you know, big grief and big loss. So what is your relationship to that? Do you have a relationship to religion, spirituality? Oh gosh. Um, I do. I, I've, I've had, I feel like in some ways I've had to create my own relationship to those things. I, I hesitate to call myself spiritual because that that's a sort of, I feel like that has a, a, a brand force, you know, but I, I grew up in kind of a religious household as in an unreligious household. Yeah. From a very early age, like I was attracted to ritual. I was attracted to people gathering in a place on a regular basis. I think it was uh, having been ripped out of, I grew up, was born and raised in San Francisco. And then, you know, when my parents' whole thing fell apart, I ended up moving to this tiny town of like 3000 people and, and, and wanted to feel like I was a part of something. So I would ask, I would go to Catholic mass by myself, with my Catholic friends, without my parents, as a little boy or to the Presbyterian church or to the Jewish temple. Like I was really drawn, I think first and foremost to community, but also ritual, whatever, whatever that felt like at that age. Um, and at the same time, like my parents, if I, if I could describe them, I would say that there's almost something sort of Unitarian about how I was raised. Like 
they tried to, there was something syncretic. They tried to like blend an understanding of nature and ecology with some of the teachings of Jesus that they could never, ever, ever paraphrase correctly or Buddhist thought. Um, and it was just sort of this continual conversation as I was like developing from a little boy into a boy into a young man of like, what is your integrity about? What, what are your feelings about these things? Um, what are these sort of core what are the core beliefs that you find important and can adhere to? Um, and it wasn't until I was older, you know, I think when you come out, um, all of a sudden you contend with the legacy of this new tribe you find yourself a part of. And that is a legacy of, you know, there's a sort of a story of annihilation for the LGBT community or for communities of color um, that it's really hard to then have a relationship with any institution that has been a part of, of that story, has been a part of that annihilation. So like, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more interested in matters of spirituality and matters of religion. At the same time, I find myself um, intellectually like very opposed to it. And there's a sort of dissonance there of like, what do I feel versus what do I know or think about the world? And so what that's meant now, like what my practice is, because the only way I can describe it is trying to create my own rituals on a daily basis that have some um, lineage with like a spiritual tradition, but that are kind of my own thing to take care of myself. It's, you know, it's a thing that I hear a lot. And we hear a lot. Um, gay kids who grew up not particularly religious, like my my partner, used to go to Catholic mass all the time, and because I because there is a a community, but b like you can't like you can't count out the role of just drama. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it's fucking pageantry. It is. You know what I mean? Fucking, there's candles. There's costumes. There's incense. There's, there's, there's drag. Yeah. There's drag. Yeah. There's yeah. There's sights and smells and bells and hymns and shit and it's like that's that's exciting for a kid i loved it when i was a young catholic boy i loved it too i speaking of like being in london um when things were okay for a minute i went to the victorian albert museum and went through the wing that's just like silver and gold uh throughout the like the history of the English church. Uh -huh. <laughs> Sorry, this is sort of like a complete digression, but it was just talking about like how the, how the English and like at the turn of the 19th, the Victorian period, like mid 19th century, just decided like, you know what, we're going to go full pageantry on this shit. We're going to give you big cups. We're going to give you incense sensors. We're going to give you everything you used to have and not want because uh -huh. we are the church of England. And that's kind of, you know, screwed up. There's a whole lot of other stuff on at the same time, but looking at, those things, these implements of this church, like, oof, there's a young part of me that just loved that. Absolutely. Loved that. Yeah. Absolutely. So you mentioned being around 11 years old and having a name for for who you you were, and I'm sure you were only just beginning to, to grasp that, but in between that age and when you were I guess in your, your 20s when you came out publicly, like 2015-ish? Yeah, 2016, right? 2015, 2016, something like that. 2016. Um, how, what was your understanding of your own sexuality in the in-between time? How out were you to your, you know, yeah. friends and family? Um, my understanding, I mean, I, I, think, I think I knew who I was at a young age. Um, I think I knew who I was because I'd always felt a little different, um, especially in in comparison to my brother. Um, and then when my dad's story kind of helped give name to what I was going through or what I sensed about myself, I want to say that I leaned in headlong um he <laughs> unintentionally would like leave his lap i was just so curious about everything all of a sudden and he would leave his his laptop open and i would like search through his history and find out about you know like 
cruising and uh, dating websites and all this stuff at way too young an age. And I was like, well, fuck it. This is my birthright. Um, this is my legacy. And so here I go. So on the one hand, I was living this, like, I was a very um, dedicated student, but then I had this whole secret life of, like, sneaking out or when I went to this art sporting school, sneaking off campus. And I would, uh, or when I was on holiday, you know, on vacation at my dad's or at my mom's. My mom lived in rural Northern California, but my dad lived in New Orleans and Auckland and uh, Melbourne, New York City, Washington, D.C., I would just sneak out and take public transportation and go to the heart of the action, whichever city I was in, with a horrible fake ID mm -hmm. and uh, live this, like, very open, out, gay life. I mean, I felt kind of like a like a queer life in comparison to my dad's journey at the time. I think he was just trying to figure out, like, how, how could he be a... Um, newly out gay man with children um, when he had this one child who was sort of like, I'm going to rocket launch past you, whatever you're doing. Yeah. Um, and that's what got a little bit weird. I mean, I, I feel like I didn't even have a label for myself or want to label for myself. Um, I knew all throughout my teens that my dad knew exactly what was going on in some ways. Um, I think he wanted to give me permission to be who I was and, and, and didn't want to confront me about anything, um, which was really, really nice in retrospect. And also, like, I think if he knew what was some of the stuff that was going on, he probably would have uh, tried to, to rein it in. Um, but uh, when I moved to L.A., I, I, I kind of had that energy and, and was out on campus at college. Uh, it wasn't until getting cast for housewives that I feel like things sort of took a turn or, or were, I don't know, like my identity sort of split. Um, on the one hand, my professional identity in Hollywood at the time, like I don't think I was being, maybe in some ways I was being sexualized, but I, I didn't feel like I was anything other than a working actor, which I was so happy about. So I didn't feel a responsibility to bring myself or my identity to the table. I was just trying to figure out how to fuck to behave on camera and how to be on a set and learning all of that stuff. And then as a single young guy in Los Angeles, I was like very out open. Um, and it, it, it got to the point in my mid to late twenties where I was like, I, I feel like um, this omission um, from the narrative is, is not only hurting me, but is in some ways contributing to the problem of hurting other people. Well, and we have to talk about the slap because I know that that coincided oh. with some of this. I don't want to make you repeat a story. I know you've, yeah. you've told a bunch, but it's, uh, you know, you, you, you told this story about a, a gay guy in the business who kept telling you to get it under control, which I guess was code for like, don't be too femme. And you confronted him about it at an Emmy party. He slapped you. Yeah. So <laughs> my question is Please. a, who the fuck was that bitch? <laughs> and B, uh, how did you react? Um, I'm not going to dox anybody because unless it's a repeated okay, mistake, like cancel culture sucks, y'all. Um, at the same time, what an asshole, because I'm not sure I was even behaving. I didn't feel in that moment that I was behaving too femme to anything. I, I just felt like I was being myself. Um, I was at an Emmy party and meeting new people, which in a sort of you know, Hollywood can be weird because on the one hand, it's social context, but it's also this business context. And so you're meeting people who occupy various positions of power or don't necessarily do what you do, but could be in relationship to what you do. Um, and so I, I, it was one of those nights I, were, I just remember it so clearly where I felt like I was in the saddle and being myself and, and having a really good time. And this person kept pulling at my collar or at my sleeve and, and getting more and more confrontational as the night went on about, you know, you've got to, it was so specific. It was like, you, you, you've got to smile less and you've got to quit tugging at the corner of your mouth. It's, it's really flamboyant. And, uh, you know, this is a professional setting. You've got to kind of keep this all under control. And, 
yeah, I, I was mad in the moment and it was something that I was planning to address. I mean, it was really one of those sort of last straws, um, for myself about, about not being out in, in Hollywood. And before I could even get there, you know, before I could even have a conversation about it, there was one more tug at my sleeve and then I just slapped so fucking hard across the face. You know, there Jesus. was alcohol involved. That's not an excuse, but um, it's a party setting. So, but it's still, it's like, it's a work party ultimately. I was shocked. I was shocked. Um, I was also in the middle of a contract negotiation. So I felt like I was kind of helpless and powerless and, and couldn't uh, really confront what had happened and what had been happening until that got resolved. And as soon as that contract got resolved, um, I, I don't know, I woke up one morning, it, 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 it all, I wish I could tell you the full story in like 30 seconds or less, but this, this was after my dad had passed. Um, I was living in, I was sort of living in New York and living in Los Angeles, trying to, to get rid of his things and, and finish up this very take care of this very complicated will. And on the day that um, we were able to kind of get some closure on his estate, for lack of a better word, I just went, you know what, I, this is a complete new chapter of my life. And that's when I called this person and confronted them about what had happened and then called some friends and, and family and said, like, this is what I want to do. It's what I've been wanting to do for years. And I don't know if it's, I don't know what it is, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm coming out and I'm doing it on my own terms. And I, I, I don't want to go through anyone other than my own channel, which at the time was this little Instagram. And I know you don't want to name names because unfortunately <laughs> you have too much um, integrity, but did you ever get closure in any way? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I, I, I not only got closure in conversation, which I don't know if there's, I don't know if you can really put punctuation on a moment like that. Like it, once somebody understands what they did and how hurtful it was and, and how much they have been a part of the same problem. Um, I, I think that that is a moment of discovery for that person, right? Like they're not going to instantly sort of give you or give me in that case, like everything I need to hear out of that apology. Um, but I got my closure out of it by taking action. You know, I got my closure out of it about having my life back and about kind of integrating these different parts of my life into something more whole and something more happy. Uh, wow. Okay. I, I, mean, I have a million questions, but you're not, <laughs> you can answer them. No, that's fine. But I'm, I'm curious about life with a newly out father. Um, because ah. for a moment, you guys are sort of developmentally at the same place. Yeah. I mean, I felt that way. Yeah. And I, I wonder, I wonder if he felt that way and if he felt frustrated by that. Um, you know, when you're a teenager, like you're keeping stuff private from your parents anyway. Um, but as I was sort of more officially out to him and in my early twenties, you know, I, I, we became very close and he knew so much about my life. Um, and I wondered, I felt, and I wondered if it was true for him, this sort of almost sometimes a sense of competition about what you just described, yeah. you know, the fact that we are sort of at similar or recognizable points in our lives. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think there was a little bit of a classic, you know, story about fathers and sons there yeah. about, um, which is, it's, it's just so different. You know, I, I, I remind you, I have this like identical twin who's straight and probably in that situation felt like completely left out of the whole thing, you know? Right. Yeah. In a way that normally, traditionally, always the queer twin would have been the one who's left out. But right. Right. Yeah. I, I wonder if there was a, any, you know, pangs of not envy, but you know, it's, it's, um, it's a it's a it's a very different version of you know the the father whose son gets to live up to like his uh, dreams of being a football star or something that he didn't get to fully you know the fact that you got to live this life at such a younger age yeah 
But I was sad. He never he never got to see me come out professionally. I mean, I, I still very much feel his presence in a strange way, even if it's just in my head. Like I don't have to I don't have to believe anything about it other than the fact that I do feel like I have I don't know, like some people might say, like my ancestors on my side. Like I know my dad is very, very happy about my life. And I wish I could have shared this part of my life with him while he was here. Um, I, I will tell you something I've, I've, I've never really told anyone before, but part of what was contentious about it is I, I was in this like five year long, untraditional, closed, very happy polyamorous relationship in my early twenties while my dad was, I think, kind of trying to find his own long-term relationship. And it was just, it was weird. You know, it's a, it was a, there was a, a, a difference in generational thinking there um, where, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what he thought about it. And I don't know um, if I took the kind of like gleeful pleasure of being, you know, of challenging my parents in that way, you know, where you're, where, where I, I don't, I don't, I certainly wasn't in the relationship to like get my dad's goat, but at the same time, there was a part of it where I felt kind of proud of my own decisions and adults in my own decisions. And I, I wondered what he thought of it. <laughs> Did he get to meet the, your, oh, your yeah. partners? Yeah, no, we were all, were we were, picture. we were all very open out to our families. We would pick one of, you know, the parental, places of origin and do holidays there yeah we did christmases or whatever holiday as a, as three um we traveled as three we were open as three yeah I mean, we were closed but we were open about being three right. <laughs> yes and i five years is a long yeah. time at that age uh for for you know a relationship with one person did it end in a ball of hellfire and fury or no i think it ended pretty amicably i mean we're still friends of course it's difficult when a relationship when you transition out of one kind of relationship into another and we didn't speak for a while but uh i mean i still i think we're all very fond of each other that's sort of an understatement um yeah but it wasn't it wasn't gonna work mm-hmm. and i get the sense of your father was looking for more of a heteronormative kind of a situation. Well, so that's the thing. I don't know if he was because um, towards the, it seemed like that's what he wanted. I mean, shortly after he came out, um, he did have a partner, a younger man who um, we got to know um, and who was great. I mean, both my brother and I loved spending time with this guy. Um, and the only thing that was kind of strange about it is he was, you know, 15 years younger than my dad. So he sort of felt somewhere in the, in the middle. Um, um, and so could in some ways feel like my, my siblings are all, my older siblings are all 10 years older than me. So it sort of felt like somebody around my siblings age. Um, so that was interesting. Um, I think he did want that. And at the same time, my dad was a very exploratory guy who like anyone was just, there were so many contradictions about his life. I mean, as he was um, in his final days, he started to reveal more and more about who he was and who he'd been. Um, And there were just these crazy revelations. I mean, I knew my dad was from sort of humble origins in Detroit, um, brilliant kid, got himself a full ride uh, a scholarship to Harvard against the wishes of his family. He went, they were sort of threatened by his intellect. And I just sort of thought that my dad's story was always about um, achievement. You know, he was a historian at the National Institutes of Health, a Guggenheim fellow, a professor, a writer. He wore all of these different hats and he wore them very well. Um, but then, you know, as he neared his, the end, he told me about how he was a, in, intended to be a conscientious objector during the Vietnam War he wasn't drafted, but uh, he ran away from his life on the East Coast uh, from sort of this Ivy circle that he was moving around into Taos, New Mexico and moved in with a male lover and lived in a shack and dropped acid for a year and ran out of money 
and uh, had to become a janitor at a hospital to make ends meet. And that's when he decided he wanted to go into medicine. I had no idea about any of that. Um, I also had no idea that, you know, he he moved around a lot while we were kids um, and would call us from various locations, whether that was Switzerland or Istanbul or Australia or what have you. And we didn't know until the very end that a lot of the time he was working on assignment for national intelligence, um, doing sort of bringing his background in medicine to that stuff, to spy world. Um, and then after he passed away, you know, I, at that point was very, very good at hacking into all of his email accounts. I mean, I had to, there was no other way to sort of finish his business and get things done. And I was like, Oh my God, my dad, my dad was kind of kinky and had, uh, lovers all over the world who did all sorts of things. And we're talking like pharmaceutical executives or radical activists. Um, he was a part of like underground kink clubs in New York city, just all of this stuff that I, I, I didn't really know, but could sort of sense in a funny way. Um, and so I think there was just this, I guess, I've tried to describe something about my dad here, which is just he toggled between this sort of high achieving um, uh, ambition oriented, like very kind of professional heteronormative guy. And then there was this really subversive queer part of him that he was totally conscious of, um, but he never, he never quite, integrated those two worlds like he even his at his funeral like we didn't know what to do um my brother and i were kind of left to our own devices and so we just sent out a mass text and a mass email to everybody in his contacts book we rented out um a, a church space in new york city and didn't know who would show up and all of these people showed up from all different walks of life all over the world um many of whom didn't know each other but had known our dad and and knew about us. They were sort of these like refractions of him. And um, I, I don't think, I think it's, it's, it's somewhat of a tragedy that my dad wasn't ever able to like integrate all of these different parts of self into one person. And I think now the story I tell myself is, is like, oh, well, that's, that's my job as his son is to try and, you know, live such a adventurous and, and magnificent life, but, but share it um, with, the people in my life and not keep everything so separate. I, I have to ask you about boys in the band um, because, you know, you do this show on Broadway and then, and then, you know, for Netflix, not that long after coming out publicly. And it is, you know, this all out queer cast and, you know, it's Matt Bomer and it's Jim Parsons and all of them. And I'm sure you felt in some ways like you'd won the gay lottery, but what did it mean to you at that time in your life to to that show? I felt like I won the gay lottery. Um, I, I felt, I felt like I felt so many things. Um, it's hard to talk about it now that it's happened because I feel nothing but love for all of those men, both the cast and and the crew and Ryan. I mean, it it was so special and it really was something that lasted three years from the first table read to, you know, doing press for, for the Netflix film version. Um, It, it was so, I, 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 I'm not gonna lie. I hustled like hell to be a part of that thing. Um, I, I wanted so desperately to be a part of that moment. Um, and, and I was given permission to do so. Um, it was one of the jobs. It was sort of right after I came out of the closet, another one that was really early on. And even before I, I think before I came out was, um, when we rise, which was this miniseries on ABC, Dustin Lance Black wrote it. Um, gosh, I mean, so many people were involved. Gus Van Sant directed the episode that I was in. And that felt like this sort of message from the universe, this sort of dharmic thing of like, oh, I'm on the right path. And uh, Boys in the Band was with that almost times 100. Of like, oh my God, to be in the company of these guys and to kind of function as their little brother 
in rehearsals and backstage and on set. Like, I just, I, I don't know. I felt like, um, a torch was being handed to me. And at the same time, um, I don't know, got to play this kind of familiar role of, of, for myself of like being the, the little brother, being the, being the, the young one there who didn't necessarily have anything to prove, but um, so just so desperately wanted to be a part of things. And uh, yeah, it was special. Mm. Ask me questions about yeah. it. Yeah. Just thinking yeah. about it, yeah. like it was so, it was so special for me. Right. Uh, seeing it, being, being in, in the audience, um, you know, you, you put on, uh, 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 boys in the band, it, uh, our own Matt McConkey, uh, was in it here in Los Angeles and you would expect, you expect that audience to show up knowing the, the material a little bit and knowing mm-hmm. a bit about what they're in for on Broadway. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's a, w- people know it's a gay play and they know, you know, Sheldon is in it. And so mm-hmm. I definitely, I remember showing up and being like, the people around me might not know a hundred percent what they are in for. And there, there were moments where the, the tension was extremely thick in the theater. I mean, so it was, thick. yeah. I mean, and also I, I, I think what was so great about it is people, there were obviously people in the audience who, who, who knew the play, who had seen sure. the movie. Um, and, you know, it has such a storied, it's so storied in, in terms of like LGBT cinema and LGBT art and performance. Um, and there were other people who really were there because of Jim or because of Matt Bomer, because of Zach or Andrew Rannells or what have you. But we were, we were shocked how every night before the curtain even went up, even though there wasn't a fucking curtain, it was just, you know, a blank stage. It felt like a party. Yeah. I mean, everybody, it, there were, it crackled in the audience to the point where like the first couple of previews, we really had to learn how to kill some of our own laughs because the runtime went on like an extra 20 to 25 minutes. I mean, the audience yeah. was so there for it and so wanting to have a good time. Um, and that, that was unexpected. And it was, I mean, it was wonderful. It, it, it didn't, it, it, it made the show feel like it transcended the sort of boundaries of being gay entertainment for the contemporary, like accepting masses. It was just this, this moment in a way, um, a moment for a limited run, a moment for theater in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you play cowboy. Who I did. Is, you know, a sex worker and is, is, very objectified by the other characters. I mean, he is literally a walking birthday gift, but I know it was important for you to humanize him and you certainly did, but I just wonder how, how did you connect to that part of him? (laughs) Yeah. I, I felt like, I felt like, so when I talked to Mark Crowley, let me say the, the playwright, um, about where this role came from, he told me about a party he went to in Fire Island um, in 1967 and how he met this guy who was either dressed up in a sailor suit or um, was a sailor who would sort of snuck away to Fire Island during Fleet Week, who gave him that line for the cowboy, the sort of famous line. Mark asked him, you know, are you, are you any good in bed? Because he also might have been a, a sex worker. And he said, you know, I... Uh, <laughs> I I I like to give people a little bit of affection. God, I just butchered it. I just know that line like I'm verbatim. Um and and that was sort of Mart's entrance into the character of like, oh my God, like here's this beautiful boy who could probably have any man he wants, but he talks about affection. And so when Mart told me that story, um I I just didn't want the cowboy to be anything other than sort of affection um, and and beyond being sweet and affectionate, like what did it mean in that time for like this young gay guy to just be this, this force, you know, this force that would speak to what was about to happen. Um, 
liberation. Um, and so what did that mean? Like I probably did way too much research for the part. I think it had nothing to do with anything, but there was this great book called City of Night, which was written by a, a hustler, sort of semi-autobiographical autofiction written by this hustler um, in the, I want to say late 50s or early 60s, about his travels around the United States and his travels into, you know, the queer French Quarter or Pershing Square in Los Angeles, which had like a crazy cruising scene until they tore the old park down or the West Village in New York. And uh, and kind of stepping into that history and sexualizing that history. I don't know about you all, but whenever I see like historical fiction um, on screen or when I read anything that is history or historical fiction, I sort of sanitize it. I feel like, oh, well, these these humans were a little less actualized or a little less like comfortable in their bodies when we were when you're like no humans have been horny since the beginning of time and have been like struggling um to to reconcile their sexuality with the norms and and the other kind of limit limiting forces of whatever period they've lived in um so in reading that book and in reading more about the history and in our conversations uh with the cast and with Joe Mantello, our director, like history suddenly became very erotic to me. And then I just felt this sort of freedom to be a version of myself in the play. Like, oh yeah, well, this is a part of me in 1968. Um, and, and therefore there's this sort of like arrow through time that was established with that character of like, of course there was somebody like that back then. And so how do I, how do I use the language of the play? How do I use the relationships to these other characters and what this play is, is saying or, or doing um, for itself and for the audience? Like, how do, I, how do I make something that is accurate, but also mine? One of the things was like, I think, <laughs> I think Cowboy's written as like a giant hunky top. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, not this Cowboy. <laughs> this is 20, 2018 at the time. Like, this cowboy is a little bottom. Providing di- a different <laughs> yeah, service, different, perhaps. Different energy, you know? Different energy. Have to have to change it up. Especially with something so famous that so many people have seen. So, yeah, that was my process. Mm-hmm. So we'd be we, remiss if we didn't ask what what can you or will you say about your d- dating life, the, the dating landscape right now? Um, oh gosh, I've been like, so reinfatuated with my friends now that I've been able to see them more comfortably. I got their, I got, I got one of those excess vaccines in LA. I'm very grateful for that. Um, and so I feel like the chapter of 2020 has started to close and something else is beginning. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's been, that's been a lot of love and I've had, a lot of love for being back in Los Angeles after feeling kind of stuck abroad for months and during a pretty grim time. Um, I snuggle with my dog since nobody seems to <laughs> be here for that yet. Um, dating's weird, man. I, I don't know if I'm paranoid or accurate, accurately reading the fact that I think, you know, when you're kind of, I don't, I don't think of myself as anybody other than Charlie, yet there are clear instances where I go like, oh shit, in some situations, like I'm a little bit famous. And I can't always tell if I'm being paranoid about receiving that energy or if I'm just sort of accurately reading the room and reading the situation. Um, and it it is a little, can you say inhibitive? Is that a word? Like it makes it hard to yeah, yeah. kind of feel free in matters of romance or dating um like i tried getting on hinge a couple weeks ago month ago two months ago and my my dating profile got um permanently banned it got flagged. Oh, they thought you were fake. I, yeah, either they, I think that's what happened, right? They <laughs> thought it was fake. And I've, I've tried to appeal it because it, it felt, I don't know, I was excited by it. I thought that that app was pretty groovy. And, um, you know, I just, 
wanted to put myself out there. Um, and so with that gone, I'm like, fuck. I mean, of course there are other dating platforms or what have you, but I'm, I, I really do like meeting people in person. I do like, um, I don't know, not only the story that gets established about like making eye, t- eye contact across the room or being introduced by friends, but I, I do think there's something absolutely real about pheromones and chemical attraction and vibe, air quotes, if you will. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. I, uh, I'm excited for a summer if it can bear if it can bear all of the really excited energy that's about to come at it. Like I, I, I hope that we can very um, cleanly and clearly say, okay, it is responsible to go have a little bit of fun because I will be right out there on that dance floor. Um, yeah. Same. And so I hope that, you know, I do hope that I meet one or several people out there in the real world. <laughs> so Charlie, as somebody who has been expecting this moment in, uh-huh. in world history uh-huh. for a while, have you given any thought to what might lie after? Like what, what are we moving into? I have. Um, I mean, I think what's so different, I am, by the way, not an expert historian or have truly any right to talk about like the history of pandemics and plagues, but when you think about it, every major plague, whether it has been a, a true pandemic, for example, something like the Black Death or a, a localized plague, like, you know, the great plagues that would strike various cities in Europe, it has just, it has always been a major inflection point because it points to structural inequities, technological inequities, um, and it, it does a sort of hard reset. And I, you know, I'm not the first one who's saying this. I'm not telling you anything new. I think the world is going to change profoundly in ways that we can track and in other ways that we can't in the next five to 10 years and in the immediate aftermath of this thing. I've been reading this book um, called Caliban and the Witches by Silvia Frederici. I hope I'm saying her name correctly. Who's this sort of Italian um, philosopher slash gender um gender studies honcho and uh she writes about these heretical cults that emerged after the black death um and they emerged because so much of the labor force then these sort of feudal peasants died and so now you know one third of the workforce is dead and the feudal workforce back then all of a sudden says, hey, we have more value than, we, than you've been giving us. And it was the beginning of labor organizing. And it was the beginning of the marketplace because the labor force demanded more of the surplus that they've been growing. You could suddenly trade um, in these like rapidly expanding cities. And uh, fortunately, you know, it's been a horrific year and there has been so much loss Um I, I, I don't think we're dealing with uh, something like that, where you know the, the math of a situation is, is going to fundamentally change the world. But so much has been revealed during this period about inequities around access and um, economics and race and gender and labor. Like, I think that there is. I'm I'm hopeful that there is an opportunity to kind of redraw a, a, a utopia of sorts, because I don't know, I don't, I, I don't know where we were going or where we were heading before this, like what, what's the more perfect world we were headed to. I couldn't tell you, but I think in the vacuum of it and during this really, really dark period, all of a sudden people are saying like, no, this is what the world needs to look like. And all of our energy will be directional towards that from now on. Here's hoping. <laughs> Here's hoping. Also, this it does bring us back to the leftovers in some way. The, the, you know, full circle. In, maybe. in these boys, cults pop up. Maybe the guilty remnant. Oh yeah, will be real. Yeah. 
Sign me up. (laughs) Charlie, you're such a gem. This has been such a true pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Really a pleasure talking to you both. Hope Um, to see you in the real world. Really loved it. Yeah. Likewise. See you on the dance floor. We'll see you on the dance floor. 